The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. So we've been doing this series over the last number of weeks. How many people have been here the last four weeks, every single week? Few people. Okay. So it's worthy of a review. Um, so Buddhist spiritual practice falls into three general categories. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Those are Pali words. And a sila, which can be translated as personal integrity, virtue, ethics sometimes. Samadhi is um, the kind of gathering of the energy of the heart-mind. Sometimes it gets translated as concentration. It's not a good translation, but it is one. Uh, or basic, the basic meditation practice. And wisdom, panya, that's the capacity to see clearly the way things are. And they work together. It's like three legs of a stool. And for the last few weeks, we've been talking primarily about one leg of the stool, the personal integrity or the virtue or the ethics aspect. And so I always use this metaphor, excuse me if you've heard it a hundred times, of the difference between the vicious cycle and the virtuous cycle. Vicious, a vicious cycle is you're thinking something, you say something, makes the situation worse, you contract, get tighter, the next thing that comes out of you makes the situation even worse. The other person may be doing the same thing. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah, you know, we all know what that's like. Virtuous cycle is what we're talking about with the, with the spiritual practice and how that works. So we're endeavoring to clean up our personal integrity the relationships in our lives, etc., to the best of our ability. And that's, we're going to talk about some aspect of that tonight. And we're also learning these practices, these technologies of um, opening the heart and mind, learning, learning to calm ourselves, you know, um, and all the restorative and benefits of that, the technology, the stress reduction, all of that. And then there's the wisdom aspect. And so as we begin and pay attention to cleaning up our lives, as we cultivate our heart-mind through these practices, ancient practices, what happens is that naturally we see things a little more clearly out of that foundation of a kind of peaceful, settled heart-mind. We start to see things more clearly. We start to have what are called insights. This particular form of spiritual practice is also called insight meditation. But the insights come out of the, both the technology of practice and a continued refinement in our personal integrity. So many people come uh, to these practices and they say, oh, I just stressed out. I just want to learn how to be calm. That's all. I don't want a spiritual practice. I just want to be calm. And that's great. And there's more. So, 
as we have an insight, maybe an integration, some, some kind of further integration or understanding of a relationship we have, or on a big spiritual question, why there is suffering, the nature of self, what about impermanence, that then can, informs our life, how we operate in our relationships, in our world. Which kind of cleans things up there a little bit, and it's a little more harmonious, which then allows us to go deeper in our practice, in our technology, in our learning to meditate. And so we get even quieter, which opens up spaces in us for our kind of natural creative understanding and, and wisdom to kind of bubble up in a more pronounced way, which then affects how we operate. So it's this virtuous cycle. Whenever you start thinking, well, why am I getting up early to like do this and sit here? You know, it's like, oh, it's the virtuous cycle. I'm kind of working it, you know, little by little, you know. So, I'm, the truth of it is, of this particular cycle, is that your capacity to meditate and the power of your ability to see clearly in wisdom um, will never get anywhere near its potential without the continued refinement of thought, speech, and action, basically. Here's what the Theravadan teacher Bhikkhu Bodhi has to say about this process. <clears throat> Bhikkhu Bodhi is a, a wonderful teacher. I keep thinking, well, it would be great to have him down here. He's, he's uh, actually a nice Jewish guy from Brooklyn who went in the monastery in Asia in his 20s and now is maybe the premier Buddhist scholar in the world. He's also a great practitioner. He's also very active now in social change. And he's um, a great voice, a really sweet, clear guy. Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote this. The Buddhist texts explain that sila has the characteristic of harmonizing our actions of body and speech. Sila harmonizes our actions by bringing them into accord with our own true interests, with the well-being of others, and with universal laws. Actions contrary to sila lead to a state of self-division marked by guilt, anxiety, and remorse. But the observance of the principles of sila heals this division, bringing our inner faculties together into a balanced and centered state of unity. One of the things I like about uh, Buddhist philosophy is that it, it has a practical um, approach to ethics or virtue. It's not based on ideals of good or bad so much. But rather that some actions lead to suffering and some actions lead to happiness and peace. And so the most important question that you could ask from a Buddhist perspective is, does this particular thought or, or these words that I'm about to speak or these actions, does that lead to greater suffering for me or others or the environment? Or to greater harmony or peace? That question 
if we actually asked it in the midst of thinking certain things or saying certain things or doing certain things, it could have a profound effect on us and everyone around us. And so you can see just by the tenor of that question that the Buddhist approach to uh, personal integrity or ethics is really one of investigation. Let's take a look. Let's use what faculties we have to really kind of parse out what leads to harmony and what leads to disharmony or what leads to suffering and what, what leads to happiness. And so in the Buddha working with his, his lay students and monastics and working in this area of personal integrity, he talked about these precepts and uh, he called them rules of training and they really have to do uh, with um, exploring but, but they're stated simply in some of the texts but it's much richer as we get into it to abstain from killing to abstain from stealing to abstain from sexual misconduct to abstain from lying and to abstain from substances that confuse the mind and create a heedless and dangerous activity. So I find it helpful to look at these precepts from three perspectives. And the first one is that there are rules of training. And you could phrase it like, for the sake of my training, I will abstain from killing. Of course, there's a whole exploration of what's killing. You know, where are we on abortion? Where are we on um, capital punishment? Where are we on killing insects? You know, where, you know, there's a lot to reflect on. You know. So in, in looking at these as training rules of restraint, it's, it's us learning to hold back on certain impulses. You know, that inclination we might have to squash that stink bug or to take a few extra things, supplies from work for our home office or to dig our hands into the bins at Whole Foods and have a feast while we're moving through the store. Um, you know, as a practitioner, we try to bring a little mindfulness to that. Okay, what's, what's the impulse that might be driving me to act in this way? I mean, what's going on inside me? What discomfort? So it's this constant reflection on what's, what's going on now. And then when we're aware, we have a choice. I can eat those chocolate-covered almonds in Whole Foods or not. Or I can squash that bug or not. You know. So, yeah, I, I like to read at night you know, and turn off all the other lights. It's got one little light on. But as many of you know, who don't have hermetically sealed houses, that attracts everything that's flying around. And those stink bugs, are they're big. And they smack into you and, you know, trying to read. But watching what happens inside me, you know, and if it lands on my book or something like that, you know, am I moving it off with aggression? Wham! Knocking it across the room. Or, you know, what's my mind state? You know, is there aversion? You know, is there fear? 
what's going on? You get startled, you know? So we can notice and then we have choice. So restraints. The, it's not that the actions are bad or immoral. We can study ourselves exploring, restraining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, uh, taking substances that, that make us kind of heedless. So t looking at the precepts as training rules protects us in a way. It offers a pretty powerful protection for ourselves and for others. We're constantly reflecting on, on the kind of restraint that we might, might want to manifest in the world. So ethics of restraint, first one. Second way to look at the precepts is that they are principles. And the underlying principle for them is non-harming. Okay? And that's compassion. You know, on restraining, we're kind of holding ourselves back a little bit. But in exercising compassion, we're acting in the world. And uh, the definition I like best about compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, mine or someone else's. <clears throat> and compassion's a verb. You know, it requires action. You know? And so when you start thinking of the precepts as compassionate action, and non-harming. It broadens the whole concept. If you had any sense while you were looking at them in, with restraint that there's some kind of commandment, when you get to this non-harming and compassionate action, it's a whole different game. It's not just that I don't kill, okay? That's restraint. How can I prevent others from killing? That's a bigger question. That's asking me to do something. And it's not just that I don't steal. How can I prevent others from stealing? You know? And from maybe stealing from future generations. I mean, you think about the ramifications. What's my role there? You know, I cannot steal and say, okay, I'm not stealing. But if I'm seeing the abuse of resources, exploitation of others, etc. What's my responsibility? Yeah. And it's not just that I restrain from sexual misconduct. It's how can I support other people, you know, in my family or my community? You know, it's, you know, relationships are hard and they're difficult. And, you know, how can we support each other? so that less harm is done, you know? And it's not just that I, that I refrain from lying, which is hard enough, you know, exaggerating this or that, etc. I mean, is it my duty to point out that when people in power or people who have a lot of control other, other over other people are lying? Should that be pointed out? so that maybe the harm that's caused by that can be reduced? Is that part of the precepts? Or is it just me just, I'm not going to lie? Where's my responsibility? 
And then about the consumption of substances that cause heedlessness. You know? What about the consumption of all resources? You know? How much is enough? How much stuff is enough? How much consuming is enough? And exploring the precepts might make you feel uncomfortable. That's okay. Sometimes we learn the most when we're a little uncomfortable. Dig down a little deeper. But if you consider it, um, honoring the precepts in one way or another is an act of generosity. When you're being careful not to harm, you know, you're restraining yourself on some things, you're being careful not to harm. What an act of generosity for everybody that comes in contact with you. And you, we all know people like that, that we feel safe around. That we can hang out with them. We, like, there's just a field that's around them that I'm safe here with them. They're not going to betray me. They're not going to hurt me. You know? That's sila, that's non-harming, that's the exercise of that. It can be felt. You know, exploring the precepts, another pragmatic reason, it just plain brings joy. You know, the Buddha talked about that all the time. You know, that a lot of people are, feel lacking in joy and happiness. But a foundational joy is the greater cleanliness that we can manifest by paying attention to the amount of harm we do. You know, there's less remorse. That's more space for the heart to kind of be open more of the time. Less guilt, etc. Alright, so we have the ethics of restraint, the ethics of compassion, and the third way to look at the precepts uh, is from the perspective that it's, it's really the way someone who is spiritually mature acts organically. Yeah. It's, it's the natural expression, an intrinsic expression of an awakened heart and wisdom that's ripened to a certain degree. We see that in a person. We're around a person like that. We all maybe know people like that or we would like to know people like that. The Dalai Lama or, you know. Uh, I was going to make a you know, smart aleck comment about our enlightened politicians, but I'm sure we can find many of them. You know. So, um, for people like that, it, it's not a should or anything. It's so deeply internalized that they can't act in any way that would violate the, the principle of non-harming. And the Buddha said on a number of occasions that if you reach a certain level of awakening, it's impossible to break the precepts, you know, or to harm. You just can't do it. It's not in you anymore. The Zen teacher Chosen Bays, he said this, we just keep on working. We are patient with ourselves and on and on it goes. 
Little by little, our life comes more into alignment with the wisdom that gives rise to the precepts. As our minds get clearer and clearer, it's not even a matter of breaking or maintaining the precepts. Automatically, they're maintained. So that automatic, that's the inherent ethics. So ethics of restraint, ethics of non-harming, and the inherent ethics of a spiritually mature person. Those are the kind of the way to look at the precepts. And it helps to look at them all, all, all three of those to give some balance to it. Because if you're looking at the precepts as just restraint, it can have that kind of, it can get a little tight and narrow. There's a narrow feeling to it. Like, I must not do this, I must not do that. I'm, it's sounding like commandments and rights and wrongs. But with the aspect of non-harming, that's a whole juicy expression of, of the best of the human condition that we're called to exercise and cultivate. Okay. And if it's understood as this inherent purity of heart, the precepts then become a joy, you know. Living becomes less stained by harm, so to speak. Roshi Aiken uh, said this, the precepts guard your practice from becoming a hobby. The precepts guard your practice from becoming a hobby. I like that one. So you could say fundamentally that this whole Buddhist philosophy or practice is about training in peace. And uh, the other nights spoken about the other aspects. Tonight I want to speak a little bit about speech. The precept that concerns speech. I mean, reflecting on the power of speech couldn't be more timely. You know, the, the amount of vitriol in our uh, political system at this point has, has seldom been this challenging. It's become very difficult to have civic discourse. And if that is to increase, there's, we can all begin to feel it. There's a greater and greater likelihood of violence. And everybody here understands the power of speech. I mean, it, it, it has the power to destroy family relationships, to create divisions in communities, and to start wars. And on the other hand, it has the power to heal, to reconcile long-standing feuds. Can actually, words can create an atmosphere of safety and compassion. And we're capable. Look at South Africa. Look at, look at their process of reconciliation where every, almost all the prognosticators in the world said, well, here we go. It's going, to be a, it's going to be a civil war. It's going to be hell. Didn't happen. They've got problems. But through words and through reflection and the heart, all kinds of horrors were avoided. And the same thing, in a sense, with uh, Ireland being Irish and, and England. 800 years of exploitation. 
And it took some words back in the early 90s from some of the English leaders of Great Britain, kind of apologies and an offer of reconciliation and the whole flowering of, of Ireland. I can go into detail about this, but I won't. And so here we sit in America um, and in one fashion built on genocide of native peoples and the wealth built on slavery. And hopefully we're approaching maybe our own reconciliation, our own exploration of what's needed to heal. We'll see. But we're kind of a new, we're, we're still a, a, a new country and there's a lot to heal here before we can really flower. And hopefully we're involved. So the fourth precept in Pali, musawada veramini sikapatam samadhyami. I undertake the vow to abstain from false speech. Now that's a, a, a literal short translation. <clears throat> but the Buddha gets into greater detail in the discourses. And he talks about lies, of course. And he talks about backbiting and slander abusive and hurtful speech and even frivolous talk talk without any real going anywhere just blah 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 kind of stuff and so this includes under this category of exploring our speech harsh speech poorly timed speech may be true but it's not timed quite right is there a motivation that's driven by greed or hatred in what we're saying. You know, and then gossip. Or creating an argument that's really misleading in some way, and we know it. Or bullying, you know, verbal bullying. Or inciting violence. Or just outbursts of rage, a kind of catharsis that creates harm around us or maliciously ridiculing another. Yeah. So all those are areas of exploration under this precept of, of speech. Thich Nhat Hanh, <clears throat> he has this kind of more lengthy interpretation of this is the fourth precept around, around speech. And, it, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. But it might even be indulging in, 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 in gossip when I, th when I think about what he's written. He's a great spiritual teacher, and he has issues like everyone else. And sometimes you'll see that spiritual teachers will work especially or talk especially about something that's really up for them. But that's all I'm going to say. And he says this, and this is, this is beautiful. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and compassionate listening in order to relieve suffering and to promote reconciliation and peace in myself and among other people. 
ethnic and religious groups, and nations. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am committed to speaking truthfully, using words that inspire confidence, joy, and hope. When anger is manifesting in me, I am determined not to speak. I will practice mindful breathing and walking in order to recognize and to look deeply into my anger. I know that the roots of anger can be found in my wrong perceptions and lack of understanding of the suffering in myself and in the other person. I will speak and listen in a way that can help myself and the other person to transform suffering and see the way out of difficult situations. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to utter words that can cause division or discord. I will practice right diligence to nourish my capacity for understanding, love, joy, and inclusiveness and gradually transform anger, violence, and fear that lie deep in my consciousness. Elsewhere he goes on to say, do not say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people. Do not utter words that cause division and hatred. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things of which you are not sure. Always speak truthfully and constructively. Have the courage to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten your own safety. That's the most kind of some recent takes in Thich Nhat Hanh. This is a very challenging precept. I mean, it has so much nuance to it. And it's very difficult for every one of us. This speech that we're given as a homo sapien, that's so vast, and there's so many ways to uh, articulate our feelings and ideas, um, and to reflect on it. You know. you know, what is harmful speech? You know, and what about civil disobedience? I mean, it, if it's felt that our, our leaders have gone off the rails and are doing harmful things, is it, is it wrong speech to kind of shout them down, disrupt their meetings, not allow them to speak, etc.? You know? What means justify the ends? That's a big question. We're bringing it home to our practice. Honesty is the key to spiritual practice. I mean, we, a mindfulness practice, has, we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to be honest with others to the best of our ability. And when we have to honestly acknowledge what's happening in ourselves. We can't gloss it over. That's not what our practice is about. If we're feeling anger, lust, you know, envy, fear, okay, this is what's up. How can I work with it? How can I be with it? You know? So honesty is, is foundational in, in any spiritual practice. And telling lies to ourselves or to others just interferes with that whole virtuous cycle. It just gums it up. Yeah. 
But on the other hand, speaking truthfully, you could say is practicing, uh, is your spiritual practice out loud, mindfulness out loud. And staying in a kind of a calm, truthful flow of mindfulness, there's a much better chance for communication to be harmonious. You just constantly, okay, what's true? You know. In the same way, you know, it's like you, you got a clean cloth or a clean shirt. When there's a stain on it, you're much more aware of it, you know. You're better able to see the stain than if it's just constantly dirty and soiled and it's just another thing on it. You've been changing the oil in the car and everything's on it. Um, a calm mind and a calm heart can better highlight agitation that comes from things like false speech. You know, it's like, oh, did I just say that? Oh my gosh, you know. The more we practice, the more we're visited, you know, almost immediately by those that kind of quick, oh, come on, Pat, you can do better than that. What? And then, but we're humans. <clears throat> and a lot of our actions, our thoughts, speech and actions are driven by this, these survival energies, you know. I mean, the common motivations for lying, what are they? Kind of greed or fear or wanting to pump oneself up so you feel like you've got some status in the tribe, so to speak. You know? You know, th these are energies that we talk about under the, the challenging energies or hindrances. The energies that always want more, that we feel insecure, that we've got to have more. It's never enough. Or energies that fear an outsider, you know. Energies that want to plan and get everything lined up so it all goes our way. So our practice gives us the opportunity to see these energies as they arise. See them so that they're more in the conscious arena as the subconscious when they're driving us to speak and act in ways that cause harm. So. It's tricky. I mean this, this you know, the, the Buddhist teachings require that truth should only be told if it's timely useful and delivered in goodwill. Timely, useful and delivered in goodwill. You know? That's interesting to, to consider that. And it's a broader, it's a broader, it's a, it's a continually broadening question. And, that, and this really means that truthful speech works together with wisdom, with our ability to really discern the context, the purpose, and the consequences of what we say. It's more than just, 
I know the truth and here's a brick bat and it's coming over your head. It's like, all right, how is this most useful? How can this be, how can this be told? And our wisdom is totally nurtured by states of peace. You know, we have this tranquility day coming up. Um, and that nurtures wisdom because if you're all agitated and feeling impulsive, it's really hard to be wise. It's, it's hard to see clearly. And when you're in states like that a lot of the time, the, the mental bandwidth isn't, isn't available, you know, to, to really take in the full range of information that's necessary to act with good heart and with wisdom. But speeches, I think it's maybe, I don't know, they're all powerful looking at these different precepts. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, consuming. But speech is so very powerful. And we can, we can make incremental movements by just applying the old sacred pause before we speak. Okay. Is what I'm about to say going to be truthful, timely, useful? And is there goodwill that's driving this? And if not, maybe I ought to just be quiet for a while. So there's lots of questions with this. It's so worthy of our reflection. We have this gift as homo sapiens. And how we use it can create harmony and reconciliation or further division. So I'm sorry I kept you a few minutes late. And next week we will put a capstone on, on these, these precepts although it's never a capstone in spiritual practice. It's constantly fascinating the refinement of each of these, the depth and the understandings that we learn as we pay attention. So thank you very much. <laughs>